0: Africa Rise and Shine Africa Zorka Africa Amuka Na una.
1: Good morning and a very warm welcome to Africa Rise and Shine This is Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance and we're coming to you live from Johannesburg in South Africa. We are on the frequencies 7230 kHz on the 41 meter band to southern Africa and on 15255 kHz on the 19 meter band to far west Africa as well as DSTV's audio bouquet channel 802. I'm Lulu Gabu in studio with Amanda Machaka, Tabiso Lohoko and Fili Lengwati. In our top stories on Africa rise and shine at the Sawa, Gambia's President Jamea refused. Refuses to leave office as a deadline passes, and UN envoy briefs Security Council on the situation in Mali. In economics news, South Africa's minister appointed to WEF Stewardship Board, and in sports news, Cameroon beat Guinea-Bissau at the Africa Cup of Nations. But first up, the news with Amanda Machaka.
2: Thank you, Lulu. Good morning. Senegalese troops backed by other African forces are poised to enter the Gambia after President Yaya Jameer refused to leave office, ignoring a midnight deadline to stand down or face military action. Shamer's army chief said his troops would not fight their entry into the country. This says the Mauritanian president flew out of the Gambia following hopes of a last minute deal to convince Shamer to hand over power. Shamer's mandate ended at midnight, but he has refused to leave office. He lost elections last month to Adama Baro, prompting West African states to ramp up pressure on the president following weeks of failed diplomacy. Nigeria sent troops and fighter jets to Senegal, whose own forces massed on the Gambian border. Mali's foreign minister says the criminal, cowardly, barbaric attack on the armed forces and former fighters will not deter the government from moving forward to promote peace and to act against those who are trying to sabotage the peace process. Abdoulaye Diop told Wednesday's previously scheduled meeting of the UN Security Council on Mali that the authors and the accomplices of criminal acts will be prosecuted and brought to justice. More than 50 people were killed in a suicide bomb attack on a camp housing former rebels and pro-government militia in northern Mali on Wednesday. Diop says Malians everywhere are united in grief and determined to work together to continue to defend and to promote peace. Tanzania's ruling party, Chama Cha Mapinduzi CCM, has blamed the opposition for misleading members of the public on the shortage of food in the country. Addressing a press conference in the city on Tuesday, CCM Ideology and Publicity Secretary Humphrey Polepole said the opposition and dishonest business people want to maximize profit by exaggerating the situation. His comments come amid reports of the food crisis in the country, while the government continues insisting there is none. He asks the public to refrain from seditious politics, calling on people to ignore false information. South African laws governing land ownership are a major concern to some South Africans. Thus, according to former President Khalima Mutlante, who was speaking in his capacity as the chairperson of the high-level panel on the assessment of the country's key legislations. Mutlante and his delegation are visiting Bombela in Bumalanga province, where a two-day public hearing is being held about the effectiveness of key laws enacted since 1994. Mutlante says although participants highlighted issues ranging from healthcare to poverty land ownership is a common issue
3: there's a common thread that uh, is you know emerging many of them raise uh, very sharply problems around land ownership because historically the african communities were excluded from holding title deeds so it, it seems to be you know a burning issue as We've been visiting all these provinces.
2: And finally, U.S. President-elect Donald Trump will enter the highest office in Washington on Friday, sharply critical of the U.S. intelligence community, which he has accused of spreading fake news, compared them to Nazi Germany while only recently conceding that Russia carried out cyber attacks that might have undermined the results of the presidential election last year. U.S. correspondent Sharon Price Peace reports.
4: President-elect Trump has taken some heat from the most senior echelons of the United States intelligence community who have urged the New York politician to take more seriously the security issues facing the country. This, of course, comes after some pushback from the Trump transition team against intelligence conclusions that Russian President Vladimir Putin ordered the hacks of the Democratic National Committee to help Trump win the 2016 election. A report by the U.S. intelligence community found that Russia's goal was to undermine public faith in the U.S. democratic process, denigrate presidential nominee Hillary Clinton, and harm her electability and potential presidency.
2: That's the latest news.
1: Thank you, Amanda. It's 8 6 Central African Time, and you're listening to Africa Rise and Shine, coming to you live from Johannesburg in South Africa. A suicide bombing on Wednesday, which targeted government troops in Mali, killing dozens, should be seen as a direct attack on the peace process there. as according to the UN Under-Secretary-General for Peacekeeping, Oeuvre Latsu, addressing the Security Council on Wednesday, warning that the country stood at a crossroads. A UN-brokered peace deal was signed in June 2015 to end years of fighting between government forces and tuareg led rebels, but attempts to bring all the sides together are moving slowly. Matthew Wells reports.
5: A UN-brokered peace deal was signed in June 2015 to end years of fighting between government forces and Tuareg-led rebels, but attempts to bring all the sides together are moving slowly. Mr Ladseus told council members that the attack on the camp in Gao, where government forces and armed groups now allied with them, were gathering to go on patrol had killed around 60 and injured dozens of others. Gao is in the north of Mali, which rebels briefly controlled following a failed coup in 2012, and parts of the region remain in opposition hands. Mr. Lazzous said although the identity of the suicide attacker was unknown for now, the agenda was clear. He spoke through an interpreter.
6: This is an ignoble attack, which should be condemned in the strongest possible terms. But it is also a direct attack, let's be honest, a direct attack on the peace process. There was no other objective behind this, ta- this attack than to derail the peace process by undermining confidence between the parties and the population.
5: While acknowledging the immense complexity of the different armed groups operating in Mali, the UN peacekeeping chief said that progress towards the deadline for implementing the agreement this year was too slow.
6: We only have five months until the end of the interim arrangements. And the lack of tangible progress is a source of genuine concern. We have to ask whether there really is the will, there really is the commitment on the part of all of the signatories to this peace process.
5: He said that security had stagnated, jeopardised by a basic lack of trust between armed groups and the government in its southern stronghold, Some progress had been made, however, he added as he promised that the UN would stand by the efforts to meet the requirements laid out in the Agreement for Peace and Reconciliation.
6: We are deeply committed to supporting the Malian government and the signatory parties in the speediest possible implementation of this agreement. President, we're at a crossroads here.
5: The Foreign Minister of Mali, Abdoulaye Diop, addressed the Security Council next and said the whole country was in mourning following the cowardly suicide attack just hours earlier. He promised the government would bring the perpetrators to justice and said that far from further dividing the different factions involved in the peace effort, it would serve to unify them. His words were also spoken through an interpreter.
1: The government of Mali is determined to apply the peace agreement and to keep all of its commitments because this agreement is the only framework making it possible to return to peace and stability
5: in Mali. Matthew Wells, United Nations.
1: It's 8.09 Central African Time and you're listening to Africa Rise and Shine, coming to you live from Johannesburg in South Africa. Gambia's President Yahya Jameh was clinging to power despite a midnight deadline set by the West African bloc for him to step down. As the deadline passed, there was no word from Jameh, who has been in power for more than two decades and once pledged to rule for a billion years. Earlier, a military commander with the regional bloc ECOWAS announced that troops were positioning along Gambia's borders. As midnight approached, Jameer met with Mauritanian President Mohamed Aoud Aziz over the crisis. For more on this, we are now joined on the line by Yegan Gray-Johnson from the Open Society Initiative for Southern Africa and a research associate at the South African Institute of International Affairs. Yegan, good morning and thank you so much for joining us on Africa Rise and Shine.
7: Thank you for having me, Lulu.
1: Now, Yegan, the deadline came for President Yair Jameer to step down. It has passed. What's likely to happen now?
8: Well, his status has changed. Um, from president um, to essentially a rebel. Um, that's according to um, certainly the country's constitution, um, the the the, the ECOWAS treaty, and certainly the democracy charter of the of the of the, of the African Union. Um, we are getting reports that um, he's still um, um, in in the state house um, in the in the capital Banjo, uh, the west of the, the western um, side of the country. And uh, Barro's team has insisted that uh, by. Certainly by 2 o'clock this afternoon, he will be sworn in. Um, the ECOWAS troops, largely led by Senegal, which surrounds Gambia on all sides, um, is actually leading the incursion into the country. They have actually entered the territory as we speak, and uh, not a single um, bullet has been fired, so there has not been any conflict, um, to my knowledge. There's been no evidence of any um, firefight or bloodshed at this Now, ECOWAS has been
1: very... In in terms of their stance with regards to Jameer's decision to sort of pull back and maintain his power and still stay in the position as president of a country, they've considered military intervention to force him out of office. Would you say this is the right option at this particular time?
8: It was the only option. There was no other option. Um, Clearly, um, you know, the constitution states that, um, you know, that the, the, the election verdict needed to be respected. The will of the people needed to be respected. There was a time frame um, for power to be handed over, and there was a time frame where Jamet's mandate had um, was actually stipulated in the constitution that it had ended. So, uh, for him to carry on, clinging on to power would have meant that um, he would be presiding over an illegitimate and an illegal government. And so, as a result, there was definitely a responsibility for ECHOAS to stand up. And then, aside from that, there's also the issue of the security aspects of it. Um, Battle had won by, um, easily by 45% of the vote. Um, so as a result, it would have been very difficult to see how two centers of power could be presiding over the same territorial um, space, uh, which has never happened um, in the country. And uh, as I said, as a result, um, it was a great um, potential for um, um, a political um, explosion, and crisis in the country. And that's what we've seen um, over the last six weeks. Thank God it has not been imploded. There has not been any bloodshed. But as I said, there was a strong potential that this could have actually um, spilled into the territory of Senegal. And as a result, um, domino effect into the Southern Corridor into Kazamas and then into Guinea-Bissau. So I think this was definitely um, um, a security move by ECOWAS um, to ensure that there was peace and stability within the region.
1: Now, let's speak about the, 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 the main issue here. Jame had acce- initially accepted um, the presidential election results. Thereafter, literally a couple of days, he turned around and said, "Nope, this is my position. I'm not stepping down. What happened? What changed?
8: Well, um, I, I think um, it's unprecedented what has happened in the Gambia. I don't think it's happened anywhere on the African continent, um, whereby um, uh, an incumbency um, um, publicly uh, um, accepts defeat and concedes. And then one week later, on the 9th of December, he changed his mind, claiming that um, he felt that he was cheated. Um, and on top of all of that, um, obviously, he had asked for something that was totally impossible. He didn't ask for a recount. He asked for a total annulment of the results and wanted to go into a purely new exercise, which was going to be um, administered by a new independent electoral commission. So these demands were clearly not acceptable and impractical to implement. And uh, the thinking is that um, at the end of the day, I think he was pressured on the second, heavily pressured on the second, totally overwhelmed and surprised to a point where he considered defeat. But then later on, when he thought about it and thought that he could possibly get away with his um, he decided to basically put as many obstacles in the way to ensure that um, he, he entrenched himself in power. And I think also there was the fear that uh, he would be prosecuted for all the crimes that were committed under his watch over 22 years um, of his administration, gross human rights abuse, massive corruption, and also basically just abuse of authority in the state.
1: Now, Jame has stated on state television that uh, um, the so-called deadline is not cast in stone um, and all parties shall await the outcome of the Supreme Court. Can the judicial sector be trusted right now?
8: The judicial sector does not exist in Gambia, as it stands. The rule of law has been decimated. The justice sector as an institution um, is not functioning, too, largely because of ZAMI's own making and machinations um, to politically interfere in um, cases, um, especially political cases. Um, you have to remember that the Supreme Court um, has not sat since uh, May 2015. There are no judges um, that have been empaneled um, for the last year and a half, 18 months. And also the petition itself was frivolous. The whole process um, was unconstitutional and uh, was biased. Um, He was um, a party to the case. He was a petitioner. At the same time, he was the one that was going to impanel the judges. Um, At the same time, um, he had taken his own government to court. One of the respondents was the attorney general, who was also um, his legal advisor. So, you know, the whole thing um, is uh, quite comical if you look at it. But uh, because of the seriousness of the case itself, uh, you know, uh, the the, the, the bottom line is that this this was not going to go anywhere. And then on top of all of that, um, he could not rely on any Gambian judges and was hoping that he could carry on in the trend that he had by hiring mercenary judges from Nigeria. Um, the, The Chief Justice of Nigeria had now refused to let these judges come to the Gambia and be empaneled to hear this particular case. So as a result, it was dead in the water from get go.
1: Now, do you think Adama Barrow's uh, swearing-in ceremony will go ahead today?
8: Well, that's what the camp is saying. We are quite confident that um, the, the he will be installed. Uh, the thinking is that uh, initially, uh, if there was resistance, um, it would have been too dangerous and too high risk to have President Barrow um, brought back into the country. He's currently in Senegal. And the chances were that he probably would have been installed um, in, in, in an embassy, in the Gambian embassy in Senegal, because it just has to be in the territory um, of the Gambia, and that constitutes the territory of the Gambia, He would have been sworn in. But the chances are now very high, that, uh, and they're quite confident that by two o'clock, he will be back in the country, and he would be installed and inaugurated as President of the Republic of the
1: Gambia. Now, after two more than two decades in power as the President of the Gambia, Yaya Jameh is now currently in a situation where ECOWAS has reacted with setting up their military um, at a different border post. Do you think the military will support Jame if a confrontation erupts in the country?
8: Absolutely not. Um, the Chief of Defence Staff has made it very clear. Although he had um, oscillated um, on the 2nd of December, he pledged his loyalty to um, President-elect Baro, um, three or four days later, he changed his mind and places his loyalty back to then President Jame. Um, now he's currently stating that um, his men will not die for President Jame. Um, and uh, they, are, they are not political. Um, They're apolitical. Uh, and they will actually abide by the Constitution and support um, President-elect Barrow. And then they've actually demonstrated this because there is news coming in that um as of three or four hours ago um the 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 troops have made an incursion into the territory and they have not met any resistance so clearly um he's speaking by his word
1: now again Earlier, you touched on the, the, some of the points where um, why Jammeh could, or the, one of the reasons why he's not relinquishing power, the fact that uh, he might be prosecuted for atrocities committed over his period as president um, in the Gambia. Looking at ECOWAS and how they've reacted as a regional bloc this sort of reaction, is this what we are to expect going forward from ECOWAS when it comes to um, African leaders in their region?
8: Yes, and this is not a new trend. Um, You know, uh, ECOWAS has been quite steadfast, certainly um, over the last decade or so, being totally intolerant of uh, abuse of constitutions, being totally intolerant of abuse of the rights of their own citizens um and the the, the 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 treaty obligations that they put forward the institutions that they put forward the economic i mean the, the ECOAS court and um, justice and human rights um and the commission itself and um, now they've actually transformed themselves into an authority it's very clear that um you know the issues around regional economic um, um, um blocks um especially within ECOAS, and the respect for Um, human rights, rule of law and good governance has been firmly entrenched and this is a clear demonstration that there's absolutely zero tolerance um, for impunity within that region.
1: Yeah, again, this is definitely a story. As it develops, we will be watching very closely as to what happens next and I'm sure we will be in touch with you to find out exactly what the situation is going forward. Thank you so much for joining us.
8: Thank you very much.
1: That was... uh, Yagen Gray Johnson from the Open Society Initiative for Southern Africa and a research associate at the South African Institute of International Affairs.
0: Channel Africa, the voice of the African
9: Renaissance.
2: <laughs>
3: Africa Rise and Shine. I am Hilda Kekelua in Zambia. This is Simon Muchemwa in Harare Zimbabwe. Jean Noel Channel
9: Africa, Kinshasa.
0: From an African perspective, listen to Channel African in English, Kiswahili, French, Silozi, Portuguese, and Chinyanja.
3: This is Moki Kinsaka. Informing
0: the world about Africa.
2: And I am Diana
1: Wanyonyi for Channel Africa in Mombasa.
0: Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance.
1: It's 8.21 Central African time and you're listening to Africa Rise and Shine. We're coming to you live from Johannesburg in South Africa. Now, Amnesty International says the Sudanese government must end politically motivated and sometimes deadly attacks on Dafuri students at universities across the country. The Rights Watchdog has released a report covering a wave of attacks spanning three years. Ahmed El Zobia, Amnesty International Sudan researcher, says dozens of students have been killed injured and expelled from universities since 2014 for organising and speaking out against human rights violations in Darfur.
7: Well, I think uh, what we initially started to collect some information and a report from human rights monitors working with Amnesty inside Sudan and also from Sudan from Darfur they send us uh, some kind of a uh, report of human rights violations against them after arrest and the of the freedom of association and assembly. And also, we went to Cairo, and we talked to some of the former students, who also experienced some of these uh, human rights violations in Sudan, and from on that floor. So we talked to students, we talked to human rights monitors, we talked to journalists, and academics as well, and, uh, and that's how we gathered this information.
9: But now, you know, this report, you say that the report, it covers the wave of attacks that spans three years. Do you know exactly how many students have been killed over these three years that are covered in your, your report?
7: Well, the report focused on the human rights violation against this because it's, it's identified in the last three years. But for the unlawful killing, actually we refer to incidents happening back uh, since 2010. So in the total, there is around uh, 13 seasons from the four or uh, in different universities uh, along uh, during this period of time. And we also link the violence against these because the tragedy against these are for you know, since the beginning of the war in 2006. So because of this, the government explained that these are rubbing our armed group
10: supporters. As
9: but now, who carries out these killings? You know, these arrests and detentions and uh, carries out the torture. Is it the police, the intelligence service, or security forces? Just what is going mm-hmm. on there? Right. Both of these violations
7: committed by the National Intelligence Service in Sudan. Especially the arbitrary arrest. So, they are racist. It not matter uh, if uh, they have uh, some kind of security. Uh, inside the university or if they have some kind of uh, demonstration or even if they have a public talk about issues related in, in, in to uh, So usually what happens, they attack the portal of the government inside the university and then the, the police and the natural skills interfere and because of the bias of the policing of these uh, kind of uh, activities, they usually tend to arrest that force even and open detention either as patients or sometimes most of the time
1: they take them to the national community extension. That was Ahmed El Zobia, Amnesty International Sudan researcher on the line from Nairobi, speaking to Khusikho Dingake. U.S. President-elect Donald Trump will enter the highest office in Washington on Friday, sharply critical of the U.S. intelligence community which he has accused of spreading fake news, compared them to Nazi Germany, while only recently conceding that Russia carried out cyber attacks that might have undermined the result of a presidential election last year. U.S. correspondent Sean Bryce sent us this recap.
4: President-elect Trump has taken some heat from the most senior echelons of the United States intelligence community who have urged the New York politician to take more seriously the security issues facing the country. This, of course, comes after some pushback from the Trump transition team against intelligence conclusions that Russian President Vladimir Putin ordered the hacks of the Democratic National Committee to help Trump win the 2016 election.
11: What are we going to do to address this threat?
4: the outgoing United States ambassador to the United Nations Samantha Power
11: It is not my aim here to theorize about which if any of these motives lie behind the Russian government's actions which not only threaten our democracy but the entire order upon which our security and our prosperity depends It is instead to ask what are we going to do to address this threat First, we must continue to work in a bipartisan fashion to determine the full extent of Russia's interference in our recent elections, identify the vulnerabilities of our democratic system, and come up with targeted recommendations for preventing future attacks.
4: A report by the U.S. intelligence community found that Russia's goal was to undermine public faith in the U.S. democratic process, denigrate presidential nominee Hillary Clinton, and harm her electability and potential presidency.
11: you swear the testimony you will give before this committee will be the truth... This
4: was a recent hearing of Trump's nominee to head the Department of Homeland Security, General John Kelly.
11: General Kelly, do you
1: accept the conclusions of the intelligence community regarding Russian interference in our election?
4: With with high confidence. The president-elect who has made his intentions clear to seek better working relations between Washington and Moscow has received increased scrutiny about his plans, given revelations regarding Russia's alleged role in the U.S. election, an accusation Moscow has denied. And while belatedly acknowledging that Russia likely hacked the DNC, Trump angrily denounced intelligence agencies over leaked claims that he'd been caught in a compromising position in Russia and that the Kremlin Knew all about it.
8: And I think it's a disgrace that information would be let out. Uh, I saw the information, I read the information outside of that meeting. Uh, it's all fake news, it's phony stuff. It didn't happen, but it should never have been released. But I read what was released, and I think it's a disgrace. I think it's an absolute disgrace. As far as hacking, I think it was Russia, but I think we also get hacked by other countries and other
4: people. In recent interviews, the outgoing Central Intelligence Agency director, John Brennan, said the president-elect lacked a broad understanding of the threat posed by Russia to the world and belittled his fondness for talking and tweeting, arguing it was not in the country's best interests. I'm Sherwin Bricepies in New York.
12: Across the globe, every second, there's always a
9: breaking story.
2: Kulituanjoy for Channel Africa Radio in Ethiopia's capital, Addis Ababa.
9: For Channel Africa, I'm Lilian Strobach reporting from the ICC in The Hague. Reporting for Channel Africa, I'm Hilda Kekeloa in Zambia.
12: Our cutting edge and hard hitting journalism leaves no stone unturned, giving you the whole picture every time. George
3: Muhango. Channel Africa, Blantyre. This is Lansana Fofana, reporting for Channel Africa from Freetown. Reporting for Channel Africa in Harare, Zimbabwe, this is Simon Muchemwa. Reporting for Channel Africa, this is Moki Kinzeka in Yaoundi.
0: From an African perspective, listen to Channel Africa in English, Kiswahili, French, Silozi, Portuguese and Chinyanja. Informing the world about Africa. (inaudible)
2: in (inaudible) Lesotho.
3: Reporting for Channel Africa, Mwai Konyo in Nairobi.
2: Join us every
0: day and know what is happening around you. Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance.
1: Our headlines up next with Amanda Machaka.
2: Good morning. In a headlines, Senegalese troops are begged by other African forces poised to enter the Gambia after President Yaya Jameer refused to leave office, ignoring a midnight deadline to stand down or face military action. Mali's foreign minister says the criminal cowardly barbaric attack on the armed forces and former fighters will not deter the government from moving forward to promote peace and to act against those who are trying to sabotage the peace process. And outgoing U.S. President Barack Obama warns Donald Trump not to lift sanctions against Russia unless he reverses what he describes as its violations of Ukrainian sovereignty. Details at night.
1: Thank you, Amanda. Years of war and destruction won't prevent Aleppo from rising once again, according to the UN Humanitarian Coordinator for Syria speaking from the rubble of the eastern part of the ancient city. Ali al-Za'atari said that it pains the heart to witness the destruction firsthand, but Aleppo's citizens have a resilience and love for life that would fully Resurface, He said that after nearly six years of civil war, millions remain trapped in parts of Syria, including the city of Der Ezzor, which has now become, in his words, double besieged by ISIL terrorists as the UN's been forced to suspend airdrops. Rim Abaza asked Al Zaatari to describe what he had seen in Aleppo, which was fully recaptured by Syrian government forces in December
10: we are seeing uh, unimaginable devastation and, and uh, destruction, especially in uh, the east side of uh, the city, uh, just adjacent to the citadel that has marked Aleppo's history and, uh, and life throughout the years. Uh, the Umayyad mosque, uh, the surrounding uh, old market, uh, which is one of the oldest roof markets uh, in in the globe, uh, basically. It has been uh, a roof market for 14 uh, centuries. Uh, A lot of destruction that pains the heart, especially for people like me who have seen uh, this area uh, under different and better times. But uh, what strikes me uh, equally is the ability of the Alephans, the, the Syrian the citizens of, of the city, uh, their resilience, uh, their love for life. What the did aftermath. they tell
9: you while interacting with them, or what did you see that demonstrated this part, the resilience?
10: It's very nice to see uh, young children uh, going to school and uh, rushing out of school. The streets are bustling. The, the markets are, uh, are running. They're working there is a determination that uh, years of war uh, are not going to prevent uh, Aleppo from rising uh, once again as, a, uh, as the second sort of uh, capital of Syria uh, and one that is focusing on uh, industrial and commercial production. Uh, but the reminders of, of this war, uh, of this conflict, of this crisis, Uh, are still with us. Uh, I mean, Aleppo is uh, under a severe water shortage uh, because the the water source of Aleppo is in the hands of ISIS uh, and for now the fourth day it's been cut off. Uh, You see water tanks and water tankers all over uh, the the town and this is something that has not been there before, uh, but thanks to collaboration between uh, the authorities and the United Nations and the Red Crescent and the ICRC uh, water is uh, uh, trucked and taken to users. Um, There's no electricity uh, for uh, a major part of the day and night. Um, So uh, the city sort of lives in darkness uh, aside from the fact that some people run generators that feed lions to uh, either shops or uh, apartments. The magnitude of the destruction uh, requires uh, considerable effort and uh, requires considerable funding to the tens or hundreds of millions of dollars.
9: And Aleppo is only part of the story in Syria. Uh, maybe Eastern Aleppo recently has dominated the news but what about other parts of Syria?
10: Usually when we come to Aleppo, we pass through Homs. Uh, it's, uh, it's it's a beautiful town uh, that has equally been uh, devastated uh, by uh, destruction uh, due to the fighting. Uh, rows after rows of uh, residential buildings, the old soup, mosques, churches uh, have all had their share of, of destruction. Luckily, uh, together with the uh, with, with the authorities, the Syrian authorities, the United Nations, uh, is doing a massive reconstruction uh, of parts of the souk. I was there the day before. Uh, and one or two shy shops have reopened. Uh, the people are optimistic.
9: And there are um, the the yeah. besieged areas as well, several besieged areas.
10: Well, the resort has been besieged for months now by ISIS. Uh, we have been... Uh, Working to uh, drop uh, by air uh, food and non-food items. Unfortunately, as of yesterday, the supply line by air to the resort uh, is stopped, and uh, because ISIS managed to separate uh, the airport from the city uh, and the landing zone that we use is in the hands of this terrorist uh, organization, uh, so the resort is uh, effectively double besieged right now and the situation there is, is bound to, uh, to go from uh, bad to worse. Um, there are indeed hard to reach and besieged areas in, in Syria that we try to reach uh, on a monthly basis in coordination with Syrian Arab Death Crescent and the ICRC. In, in recent uh, weeks uh, we have not been uh, as successful as we want to be. Uh, due to uh, approval processes uh, that complicated the, uh, uh, the the movement of the convoys, we are uh, in uh, constructive dialogue with the authorities to uh, remove of these uh, remove these obstacles and uh, facilitate the movement of convoys uh, to to these uh, areas.
1: That was UN humanitarian coordinator for Syria Ali Al Zaatari speaking to Rim Abaza. South Africa's Minister and the Presidency for Planning, Monitoring and Evaluation and Chairperson of the National Planning Commission, Jeff Khadebe, has been appointed to the Stewardship Board of the World Economic Forum System Initiative on the Future of Education, Gender and Work. This opportunity comes along the lines of South Africa's trusted partnership with WEF. Khadebe was invited to join the board comprising 20 to 40 global leaders drawn from the public and private sectors. He will be expected to provide leadership on selected issues relating to education, gender and work. Khadebe begins by telling us about the objectives of the Stewardship Board of the World Economic Forum. Well,
7: the objectives of this uh, Stewardship Board it's simple to prepare the world in terms of education, work, and gender of uh, the unfolding fourth industrial revolution that is taking place before our own eyes. That uh, we need to reshape education and skills so that we can be able to prepare our young people for the future of work in, in all the countries. Just to give you one statistic to highlight the seriousness of the issue. In terms of the stats from the World Economic Forum is that uh, those children who are starting a uh, primary education this year, fifty two percent of them will be in jobs that do not exist today. And this is uh, activated by the advent of this uh, revolution in technology and so on. So as developing countries in particular in Africa, we need to prepare ourselves for this major paradigm shift. So that uh, instead of being fearful of this technological advancement, we need to embrace it and adapt to the new conditions, but also at the same time as responsive and responsible leadership, then we can mitigate against some of the negative impacts on jobs amongst our people. So our primary task is to develop a five-year program roadmap, Of what is needed to be done both by the public and private sectors in order to ensure that education, gender and work are the utmost priorities around the globe.
9: Now Mr. Minister you know you've mentioned the technological advances you know impacting somewhat negatively it is now well recognized that the disconnect between education systems and labor markets plus this technological advancement, is creating instability and insecurity to livelihoods, you know. How can the skills gap be closed?
7: Well, I think the important thing is that uh, we need to learn from the past. That is why our main preoccupation as a developing world is that this fourth industrial revolution should not leave us behind because the first, second, and the third revolution, the mainly advances, but the peoples of Africa, in particular, never had the benefit of this advancement of the previous three revolution. So we should not allow ourselves to be in the trap. So what is important, therefore, even though governments play critical roles in regulation, setting of standards, and so on, in education, but with this new scenario unfolding before our eyes, we need a closer collaboration and partnership between government and business and labor in order to ensure that when we set curriculums providing and reshaping this education and skills development is the kind of skills that are going to be there in 10, 15 years time so that uh, our aging population should not fall victim of this exponential advancement in technology.
9: Now, going on to the gender, you know, apparently in the 10 years since uh, the forum began measuring the global economic gender gap, it has narrowed only by 2%. You know, will your stewardship board, how will they improve of this? I mean, women's economic empowerment is the smart thing to do. What's stopping us? You know, despite recent gains, large gender gaps persist in all kinds of work. You know, how can we change this?
7: That's why it's important that uh, as stewards of this uh, issue of the education, gender and work, it is important that we advocate good policies so that uh, countries where discrimination against women is still prevalent, we need to advocate for constitutions to entrench the equality of the sexes, gender, so that people should not be discriminated merely because they are women. And we know, for example, in South Africa, our constitution Entrenches changes the equality between the sexes. But we've gone even further to ensure that women are framed in many areas of, of South African society. So it is important, therefore, to also highlight the fact that the trend around the world is that, if, for example, in South Africa, about 52% of our population are women. So we need to recognize that women also are a very important force at the place of work, so we need to recognize that so that we fight against any manifestation of discrimination and patriarchy in all societies around the globe.
9: But now what about public-private cooperation? How will the stewardship board look for solutions to challenges through public-private cooperation?
7: Well, in this board consists of uh, people in the public sector, but more particularly we have a Major CEOs or chairmen of companies in all areas of education and ICT who are members of this board. So that partnership, I believe, going forward, as we develop this five-year program, it will be indicated how how this partnership will be working.
9: And finally, Minister, now this year's World Economic Forum is taking place under the theme "Responsive." And responsible leadership. How does this tie in with the objective of ending extreme poverty by
7: 2030? Well, uh, I think uh, the Oxfam report uh, gave us very shocking statistics that one uh, percent own as much as the 99 percent of the whole of the globe, and that eight men have wealth that is equivalent of 50 percent of the wealth on earth. That's is very staggering. So it is important, therefore, that uh, world leaders must show responsive and responsible leadership. Yesterday, President Xi Jinping of China gave such leadership that uh, we need to have this shared future, whether a country is big or small. We need to open up our economies. We must fight against protectionism. We need to deal with more than 700 million people who are still entrenched in poverty across the globe. So we need to develop the pro-, pro policies so that we can be able to deal with this huge gap between the have and the have not.
1: That was South Africa's Minister and the Presidency for Planning, Monitoring and Evaluation, Jeff Khadebe, speaking to José Jodinake on the line from the World Economic Forum underway in Davos, Switzerland.
12: A very good morning. My name is Tabi Solohoko with Channel Africa's Economic Update. As the world prepares to witness the inauguration of Donald Trump as the U.S.'s 45th president on Friday, delegates at the World Economic Forum held in Davos, Switzerland, explored ways in which the American society can be reunited following a divisive election season. They also have highlighted a number of factors that led to the current status quo in the U.S., which are similar to those around Britain, deciding to exit the European Union. Professor at the University of California, Laura DeAndre Tyson.
9: You have
11: people who strongly, strongly identify as cosmopolitan, as kind of globalists. And in the middle, you have a majority, a majority that split their votes between Trump, non-Trump and the U.S., And that's really, we can think of it as like the anxious middle, Mm -hmm. a
1: middle that's characterized by fear and anxiety for many of the reasons that you've talked about. And I think the challenge and what we need to step up to as change engines is how we communicate with that middle, because uh, the, the people there are not feeling heard. They feel that the system has let them down.
12: There seems to be uncertainty among role players attending the World Economic Forum around some of US President-elect Donald Trump's policies he has already alluded to. Some of the business leaders from the United States attending the WEF in Davos say they believe in trading with different countries around the world. Senior Vice President at IBM David Kenny, says they will have to adapt to any environment that will be created by the Trump
6: administration. Well, we'll wait and see. Right. I think we, uh, we're very much believers in, in having trade. We trade with the whole world, and, and the whole world trades with us. So we'll, you know, we'll adapt to whatever the environment is.
12: A U.S. advocacy organization that helped to pass the marijuana legislation in Washington, D.C., meanwhile, plans to smoke out Donald Trump's inauguration on Friday by passing out at least 4,200 marijuana cigarettes. Kenya lags behind the region in creating inclusive economic growth despite years of robust wealth creation. New data from the World Economic Forum released at the opening of this year's global meeting in Davos on Wednesday indicates that Kenya's wealth creation over the past decade has left a majority of citizens behind. Kenya's ranked sixty-five out of one hundred and nine on the Inclusive Growth and Development Index, a new measure for growth championed by the WEF to provide a more accurate picture of economic development than gross domestic product growth. Egypt is on track to receive the second tranche of a twelve billion US dollar three-year loan from the International Monetary Fund pending a visit. Uh, in the end of February to review progress on its economic reform programs, the IMF originally approved the loan intended to jumpstart an economy battered by years of turmoil, that has driven away investors as well as tourists alike. The U.S. dollar: thirteen five one in Mzansi, 10.45 in Botswana, nine eight seven in Zambia, eight one British pound, nine three euro. Gold: one two zero two dollars. Platinum: nine five nine. Dollars an ounce. Brand crude oil. Five five dollars. Four three cents a barrel. Channel Africa.
1: Our sports update up next with Figi Leland and Marty.
3: Again with football news, Zimbabwe national football team, the Warriors, currently doing duty at the AFCON finals in Gabon, are having it their way money-wise, having already pocketed at least twenty-three thousand US dollars each. The Warriors squad of 23 has a dozen players who are currently plying their trade at the South African clubs. Following their impressive draw with Algeria in the opening group C match on Sunday, all the players in the squad were each paid 3000 US dollars after the Zimbabwe Football Association availed 110000 US dollars which was shared by the players and the technical staff. Zimbabwe, carrying the hopes of the Kusafa region, still have two more group matches to play against Senegal and Tunisia for which each Win carries a reward of 6,000 US dollars with the technical team in line for double what the players will get. Zimbabwe takes on the Senegal in their second clash of AFCON at Stade de Franceville tonight. FIFA technical director Marco van Basten would like to see how football works without offsite and limit the number of fouls a player can commit during a game. The former Netherlands striker would also like to experiment with sin bins instead of yellow cards and replace the penalty shootout with a system in which a player would have to run at goal from 25 meters. Speaking to German magazine Sports Build, Van Basten says any experiments would have to be approved by soccer's ruling-making ma- body, the International Football Association Board (IFAB). Van Basten says sin bins. Would benefit attacking teams more than giving a yellow card to the player who has interrupted their move. He also proposed abolishing extra time and using different systems other than penalties in the shootout. On to cricket news. Former South African Test captain AB De Villas says a changed role in the team, changed priorities, and family are some of the reasons he has made himself unav- unavailable for the Test series against New Zealand in March. England in July, and Bangladesh later in the year. De wasn't part of the Proteus squad that achieved a whitewash against Sri Lanka as he was recovering from elbow surgery three months ago. But he says he would still like to play test cricket.
8: I do still have goals. I, that's why I, I didn't want to make any silly statements um, about retiring out of test cricket or anything like that. Like I told you guys, I needed a bit of time away from the game. I need some more. and um, Therefore, I made myself unavailable for the New Zealand series. But to add to that and um, which i didn't mention yesterday is also the england series and the bangladesh series after that
3: divina says change priorities and family are some of the reasons for his decision
8: like i said priorities have changed over the years i've played for 12 odd years now um, family has changed uh, my my roles in the team have changed over the years and there's a lot of things that played a role in in this decision um, but like i said i wouldn't like to think it's the end i'd still like to make that comeback
3: and 2nd seeds Novak Djokovic and Serena Williams look to have easy rides into the Australian Open third round today. But it could be a tricky assignment for Rafael Nadal. Six-time champion Djokovic is looking to reach round three at the Melbourne Park for the 11th straight year with wildcard Dennis Easterman, ranked 117, standing in his way. It should be plain sailing for the Serb, who has beaten the Uzbek in all five previous encounters and has only lost one and once to anyone outside the top 100 in the last seven years juan martin del Porto at the rio olympics williams off to a solid start in a quest for an open era record 23rd grand slam trophy faces lucy safarova who saved nine match points before beating yanina wigmeyer in round one on rod laver arena the american great who lost the top ranking to Angelique Keba last year has hardly played since the US Open, but is happy with how she is progressing as the new season unfolds. That's sport news this hour.
0: Africa rise and shine. Africa zote Africa amka na unanga
1: Recapping our top stories on Africa Rise and Shine at the Sawa, Gambia's President Jamir refuses to leave office as deadline passes, and UN Envoy briefs Security Council on the situation in Mali. That wraps up Africa Rise and Shine today. For myself, Lulu Gabu, Producer Pumutura Ramagaza, Technical Producers Fisoma and the rest of the team, thank you for joining us. For comments about our show, send us an email at infochannelafrica.co. or tweet us at riseshineafrica, or send an SMS on 277-969-57930. And taking us to the top of our hour for the news on the frequency 9625 kHz on the 31-meter band 2 southern Africa is Angelique Kijo with a song titled Agwon.